I don't think one can do public health right without engaging in the messy world of political or controversial decisions and areas. And I think public health has to have the courage to do that. You're listening to Case Confirmed, a public health podcast series. Each month, we interview a different expert in the field of public health. In today's episode, we're exploring the future of public health. What will public health look like in 10 years? How will politics and climate change affect people's health? How will technology interact with people's health? We'll answer these questions and more. For our very first guest, we'd like to introduce Dr. Sandro Galea, the Dean of Boston University School of Public Health. He was previously the Chair of Epidemiology at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dean Galea. We're very lucky to have you on as our first guest on Case Confirmed. Um, All right, so to jump right in, for those in our audience who have no idea what public health is, how would you describe it to somebody with, um, with no background in the field? Public health is about making sure that people are healthy. It's about keeping us from getting sick. And it is about creating a world where people are as healthy as possible for as long as possible. And to do that, public health has to be about the physical and social conditions where we live, which of course is linked to politics and the issues of income and class and race. So public health is concerned with health, but not with disease. One way I like to think about it is that public health is the larger category Medicine, which is what most people are familiar with, is the smaller category. Medicine is there to make you better once you get sick. The job of public health is to work in the political, social, cultural, economic, physical, environmental sectors to keep you healthy. And from your perspective, how has the field um, changed over the past 10 years? I think in the past uh, 10 years, public health has recognized that its charge is to embrace all the levels of influence on the health of populations. And by that I mean it has recognized that institutional policies matter for public health, neighborhoods and environments matter for public health, networks of behavior matter for public health, individual behavior matter for public health, as does biology and genetics. All of those are ultimately steps in the causal chains that produce health. And I think public health has come to embrace that full range, going from public health genomics to the epidemiology of politics, public health, and all of that matters. Now, it makes it hard because it's a very broad remit, but I think public health is grappling with how to make that entire scope its own. Over the next 10 years, 20 years, I would uh, hope that public health deepens its grounding in a social justice and human rights mission, but builds on that to study the science of population health to the end of informing policies that can really make a difference to large populations. And that is, in many respects, what's interesting and exciting in public health. It's the combination of a grounding in social justice, human rights, and core deeply held principles but informed by a population health science that can then inform policy. That's where I would like to see public health going in the next 10 years. That sounds like a really great vision. When people think about the future of public health, often they're concerned about infectious diseases like Zika. 
Do you think all of that fear-mongering in the news is justified? I do think that Zika is scary. I think um, Ebola is scary. I think these infectious diseases that uh, capture our attention are terrifying. So I understand why the focus on them. I think a forward-looking, progressive public health takes what I've come to call a common sense approach. I have a paper making an argument for a common sense public health, which says, yes, we have to deal with these acute urgencies, but we should focus most of our energy on what's important. The distinction between what's urgent and what's important, which was made in a paper by um, um, McGuinness and Fagy, which I really like, I think is an important one. And public health should focus on what's important. What's important is what, what I was talking about earlier, which is building the physical environment, social environments, changing politics, changing culture, changing the conversation about what it is that promotes health, because that's what's going to make for healthy populations in the long term. That doesn't obviate making sure that we have the best possible surveillance system and the best possible responses to infectious disease outbreaks. But it does mean paying attention to the bigger picture and keeping one's eye on the long arc. Very well said. Do you have any advice for aspiring public health leaders and professionals who are, you know, hopefully training right now to take on all these issues that you just mentioned? Well, the two pieces of good news I would have for aspiring leaders and professionals are, number one, that the vision of public health that I'm describing is an expansive one, which makes for really interesting opportunities at the intersection of the natural sciences, the physical science, at the intersection of a broad range of disciplines. So I think it makes for a very interesting subject matter. The other piece of good news is that it's hard to believe that public health is not going to matter even more in the coming decades as society ages, as we come to value living healthy, longer lives more and more, the scope of public health is going to matter more. So I think the good news is this is interesting and it matters. The bad news is that the scope is broad, which means that it's a lot of work and it requires expertise that is nimble across all this work. And I think the other piece of bad news is that I don't think one can do public health right without engaging in the messy world of political, controversial decisions and areas. And I think public health has to have the courage to do that. One of the recent controversies that's been going on is sort of distinguishing between real news and fake news. And along those lines, as data becomes more available to people, um, they're more concerned about being able to separate fact from fiction. So how do we distinguish between the two? And how do you recommend to this audience the best way to do that? I think we have a bit of a naive view of data. We have a sense that data embeds in it an absolute truth that yields itself almost like a sculpture emerging from a piece of rock. I think we have to be honest that data is can be interpreted in a range of ways. We have to be honest that there are biases that we bring to data analysis and interpretation, that there are biases that we bring to how we present our data. And I say that because I think we should be deeply self-critical and make sure that our analysis of data is beyond reproach so that then we can stand tall and say, no, this is the truth. This is what's out there, that uh, there is global environmental climate change. And uh, yes, there is an opioid epidemic. And uh, be able to back that up with solidity and confidence in our data. So I think 
we need a combination of being self-critical, making sure that what we're doing, we are doing uh, thoroughly and well, so that we are beyond reproach in the battle for public opinion. I think then the whole hashtag fake news is irrelevant, and I think it's revealed for what it is, which is a which is an easy way of trying to um, to put things down without any substance. And just kind of along those lines. Um a lot of people who are critical of health news will say that every other day there's like a new, you know, coffee is good, coffee is bad, or this thing is good, this thing is bad. And I'm curious if, you know, in other fields like in psychology, there is a problem with replicability in research. And do you notice that with public health? I think the challenge of repeat studies that show different things is a very real challenge. And I think it's an issue of replicability and it's largely an issue in population health of external validity and of uh, choosing different samples which yield different truths. These things are true for particular samples, but of course it's very hard to interpret that for the general public. So I do think that we, and by we I mean the population health science community, have a responsibility to get over ourselves and be careful um, uh, and how we communicate what we communicate because we will lose credibility around things coffee good coffee bad blueberries good blueberries bad and we should not we should not fall into the trap now that is going to require a lot more rigor in how we do our work how we communicate our work and how we communicate our work than what we we do right now so on that vein um, in your opinion what public health issues should the podcast audience pay the most attention to in the coming future it seems to me that uh, the uh, most interesting set of public health issues are the ones that exist at the intersection between policy, politics, law, environments, physical environments, urban environments, and individual behavior and the biology that produces disease, which is everything. So I'm not sure that there's any one area which I think... Uh, the audience should focus on. I actually think that people should find their passion in particular areas. As long as they apply a population health science lens to their area, I, I, I think uh, we should have a big tent warm embrace of all areas. And I'm curious what you think about the role of technology in the future of public health. Do you think it's mobile health that will really transform public health? Do you think it's everything? Is there anything in particular that sticks out to you? How would you answer that? Technology is cool. It's... Uh, it's shiny and we all like it. And I, I, I like my gadgets as much as the next person. It'll be very interesting to see what technology emerges as having utility to the, towards the end of improving the health of the public. At the same time, it seems to me that working on foundational challenges that limit our health of the public, ranging from the gaps between health haves and have-nots, to the extraordinary racial, spatial, residential segregation, to issues of violence, undiagnosed issues of mental health, are low-hanging fruit that we haven't dealt with. And I would hate to see technology distract us from that. So I like technology. I like I like inserting technology. I just want to make sure the technology doesn't become uh, an excuse to move us away from things that matter. And there's some people that even say that technology would worsen that gap. Can you speak to that? I think technology could worsen those gaps given around digital barriers, barriers to access. I'm not convinced that technology has made that much of a difference to the health of populations. And by technology, I, I want to be careful in saying that. I mean high-tech, whiz-bang technology. I think at the end of the day, water sanitation is also technology. Um, that, it's, that I don't think that 
current technology has made that much of a difference as to widen health gaps. That's probably good and bad. The good news is it hasn't. The bad news is that, well, it means it hasn't made that much of an impact yet. I do think that we are going to get technological solutions. And uh, I um, think we should... Uh, we should approach our task as improving the health of the public by any means necessary. And the technology is a very welcome partner at the party. All right. To switch gears a little bit, um, we want to go a little bit into global current events. Um, under the Trump administration in the past few months, the U.S. withdrew itself from the Paris Agreement. Um, what are your thoughts on this and um, general thoughts on the public's responsibility with respect to not only climate change, but you know, these big policy moves that the government is able to make, like how much, what, what, how should the public respond? We are living in interesting times when um, our elected uh, federal officials have adopted a resolutely anti-science perspective where they are basing policies on really ideology and putting aside what we know and the the uh, Paris the pulling out from the Paris uh, climate change accord is a good example of that it seems to me that the public should uh, be outraged that uh, we should expect that our government based on enlightenment principles should see science and facts as the basis of what it does the fact that it does not should be cause for concern for any citizen our responsibility in public health is to say that is to speak that and to do so relentlessly until we have a change in administration. Do you think that it also requires a change in culture? Um, I feel like the U.S. maybe compared to other countries, I don't want to say anti-science, but... In many respects, the U.S. is shockingly behind other peer countries in our scientific literacy. And that is probably a result of our disinvestment in uh, basic public education that elevates our collective conversation around science. And now we are reaping what we have sown on that front. So does is, is it require a culture change? Absolutely requires a culture change. It requires a an embrace of science and facts as being the core foundations of our decision-making. And the fact that we currently have... Uh, a president who is able to get away with sloganeering that is entirely distant from truth and reality is a reflection, I think, of our collective willingness to let data, science, and facts slip through our fingers. And we should not allow that to happen. I think that's a very important point that you just made. Um I think it's also important for the future of healthcare reform to be very evidence-based and data-driven rather than based on a lot of ideology. So along those lines, um, when we're talking about health reform and we're talking about what the U.S. might aspire to, how do you feel about the Canadian model? Since you trained to be a physician in Toronto, what are your thoughts on Canada's healthcare system? Because depending on who you talk to in the U.S., it's either like a socialist disaster or it's the golden standard of healthcare that we should model in the U.S. Canada's healthcare system is neither a social disaster nor is it a golden panacea. It's probably somewhere in the middle. I would suspect it's probably closer to a solution than it is to the problem. Uh, one needs to understand that there's nothing socialized about Canadian um, uh, Medicare. Uh, there is a single payer, which is essentially Medicare for all. 
but the physicians and the providers remain free agents. They're independent actors, uh, and the force of the market apply to them. What Canada has done, though, is create a single payer. And by having a single payer, it can have much more control over the system, make sure that everybody has access, and keep costs under control by creating the standards and protocols that ultimately move to a manageable, sustainable healthcare system. One of the things, for example, Canada's been able to do is to help control how many primary care physicians there are versus how many secondary care specialist physicians there are, which you can only do if you have a single payer who has that kind of that kind of full picture view of the system. And that is what's lacking from the American system. So in your opinion, do you think that single payer would be a single payer system in the US would be um, feasible here, a better solution here? One of the interesting phenomena that we have seen in the past year is that with the attack on the ACA Obamacare that emerged with the election of President Trump, the public's fondness for Obamacare went through the roof. And for the first time ever in American history, now the majority of Americans say that a single payer or Medicare for all is a viable and perhaps desirable system. So there is a window of opportunity here. Do I think that single payer Medicare is a solution to all our ills? Absolutely not. Do I think it's better than what we have now? Definitely. Kind of curious about your own personal career, shifting gears. Um, we noticed that you switched from emergency medicine to public health, and we're wondering what motivated that transition, if there's anything in particular that really stood out to you as a moment where you realized, oh, you know what, public health is actually where I belong. This is what I really want to do. So I'm curious, was there a defining moment? Was it just a series of realizations? How did you come from one place to another? In many respects, emergency medicine is... Uh a perfect gateway to public health because the emergency physician constantly sees cases of disease where one feels like this should never have happened. And it makes one ask, surely we can do better to have prevented this from happening. Having said that, my career turning point was very much when I was working in Somalia with um, Medicine Sans Frontier. I was working in um, Puntland, which is a region of Somalia. I was the only doctor for many people. And I was seeing people in my clinics every day, many of whom would have died without medical intervention. So we were making people better and restoring them to health all the time. But the effect that had on me was perhaps paradoxical. It made me really question why are so many people getting sick with diseases that should have been preventable. And yes, I was helping them, but once I left, there'd be nobody to help them or there'd be somebody else temporary. And it really made me ask, what are the core foundational causes that are resulting in so much poor health and so much disease. And I wanted to learn how to do that. So I went back to school to do a master's in public health to learn how to do that. And and I have been on that path ever since. Great. Thank you. All right. So for our last few questions, we want to get a little bit more personal, a little um, closer look at you know who Dingalea is. Um, so to start, do any memories from your career stand out to you as formative experiences in your professional or personal trajectory? I did medicine in fairly remote rural parts of the world. I had a medical practice in northern Canada. I worked in Somalia, as mentioned before, places like Papua New Guinea, uh, Guatemala. And these places were very formative because they embedded in me a deep commitment to marginalized in global populations, I think that has informed my scholarship. In the context of my academic work, I have had the good fortune of being part of uh, very good uh, research teams. And uh, 
I have always enjoyed the, the, the role of the researcher to produce new knowledge. And uh, uh, every single time I publish a paper, I still am excited about it. Every single one is, uh, is a peak event for me. I haven't lost my enthusiasm for our role in the academy in producing knowledge and in teaching that knowledge to our students. Thank you. For the next question, we're a little curious what your ideal job would be if you're not already living it. Well, my ideal job would be to be a soccer star. <laughs> if I if I if I had the right skill set, <laughs> I would be a soccer player. <laughs> I um I had neither the skill set nor the inclination to achieve that ideal job, but I think my job right now is pretty good anyway. <laughs> Definitely agree. Um, speaking of, what decisions are most difficult for you in this leadership role in public health? Or I guess in general, um, in public health, what decisions are the most difficult? Either way you want to, you interpret it. The hardest decision that anybody in any leadership position ever makes are decisions that influence people, that influence human beings. And in when you are entrusted with the responsibility of doing something like leading a school, as I have the good fortune of having been entrusted, you make decisions that are intended to elevate, move a school forward, but inevitably they shift things around. And there are people who had... We're doing things a certain way, and all of a sudden they have to change and do things different in different ways. And that's hard. That is hard because these these are real people who who have to change how they're doing, and some people adapt to that and some people do not. That's the hardest part. The hardest part is knowing that in the process of doing the right thing by the institution and by the people within it, and by in the process of doing the right thing by the world and elevating the institution, helping it achieve its mission, that you are doing things that put individuals, other human beings in uncomfortable positions. And that's hard. A little bit earlier, we were talking about you know, fake news, how you know, it's a very big, um, much talked about topic these days. And we were just curious, um, where do you get your news sources from? How often do you tap into them? I read all the time. And I would recommend to anyone in the audience to read like breathing, read all the time, whatever you can get your hands on. I, um, do browse multiple sources on the web on a regular basis. I do read the regularly read what is currently much maligned as mainstream media. I read a, I try to read both sides of arguments. I read the New York Times. I read the Wall Street Journal. I read the Washington Post. I browse other the newspapers from other cities. I also read European newspapers uh, like the Guardian on a fairly regular basis. And then I read. Um, longer form pieces on a regular basis in places like the New York Review of Books, London Review of Books, Paris Review. And of course, I read um, journals. I read public health journals. I read papers in those journals all the time. I also like to read fiction. And I think uh, one should have a, a, a fiction, one at least one fiction book going at any one time because that keeps the soul alive. Could not agree more. It's <laughs> inspiring. Um... I really like what you said about having diverse news sources, even from other countries, not just inside the country. 
So this last question is just to wrap up. And we're really curious, since you're in the field of public health education, what you might recommend to somebody who's considering this field. And there's tons of people now who are really interested in getting an MPH, who are in the process of getting an MPH, but they don't know what they want to do with it. Do you have any advice for current students or people who are the younger generation, millennials, who are going to be um, joining the field of public health soon? Public health is a great field to be in, and uh, I could not recommend it more highly for any millennials who are interested in, if you're interested in doing something good for the world, keeping people healthy, if you're interested in having that informed by a core set of deeply felt principles, but you're interested in then learning how data and science from a broad range of disciplines can be brought to bear on important issues that matter to people's health. It's hard to think of a better degree to get than an MPH. I completely agree. Um, I really enjoyed mine. We're really lucky to have you here. Dr. Galea, thank you so much for joining us on Case Confirmed. Yeah, it's been a great conversation, and I think our audience is really going to appreciate um, everything you want to share with us today. <laughs>